0: Ahoy, and welcome in to another exciting episode of Not Allowed to Die, where I, Dan Magler, social worker and life enthusiast, answer your questions about mental health and talk about dilemmas that I'm seeing in my practice, both as a therapist and a school social worker. Back alongside me is my intrepid podcast host, Mariska. She was a little bit put out about me recording at the school without her the last time, but I think she's forgiven me. She has been a little bit wobbly on the legs, and we know how to make her feel better We rate and review the podcast. So you don't want Mariska to have to lick her paws, and you might hear a little bit of it today, then go to Apple Podcasts or, you know, wherever you listen and rate and review. And Mariska only likes the five-star reviews. Today I am very excited to have a guest who I have been begging to come onto the podcast because we all have those people in our lives that when you're confused or you're not, you're not sure where to turn, you would pick up the phone to get some advice and bounce ideas around with. And so Eleanor is another therapist that I know who was born in Chicago and grew up on the North Shore. And then growing up, she was the child of a parent with a serious mental health disorder. And after coming her, overcoming her own mental health challenges, was able to complete her degree and achieve her dream of helping children like herself. And so I'm excited to welcome her into the podcast so we can talk a little bit about what is it like to live with a person and have a family member that you really love and care about with a chronic mental health disorder? And what are those things that, you know, she wishes she could tell her younger self? And so I, I want to get some of those thoughts from there. So friend of mine and a person that I bounce ideas off of, Eleanor, how are you feeling today?
1: Hi, I'm feeling good. A little nervous. I've never been on a podcast before, but I think it's to me a great time.
0: And we may hear, because like me, and actually far surpassing me, Eleanor is a big animal enthusiast. So, although her animals are actually well behaved, and so they're unlikely to make the noise during the podcast. But as you all know, I do not edit anything. So if you hear something in the background, it might be a furry friend who's providing some input in the podcast today.
1: Yes, very possible, although they are both sleeping right now, so oh, we'll see. Yeah,
0: they're, they're following Mariska's example of just, like, laying there and being docile. Maybe if we get into some really exciting stuff, that they'll perk up. Well, sharing as much of your story as possible that you're, that you're feeling comfortable with, and this is one of the things in recording the podcast that I, Eleanor and I talked about this before getting on. When you have a family member with mental health issues and you want to tell and share some of your story, no matter how comfortable you feel being open with it, you have to kind of pick and choose what you're sharing because your stories also impact other people. And I know I've been open on the podcast about I have pretty much every mental health disorder in the DSM, in my family, from my aunts, uncles, siblings, nephews, nieces. Um, But again, telling those stories can be challenging to pick and choose. So if there are times when we're pausing or figuring out how to say a certain thing, it's because we want to be respectful of those things. But when, I guess, owner, did you realize that your mom was not, you know, typical and that things were a little bit different with mental health in your home?
1: Yeah, so I think I was decently young. Like, I would say middle school was when I really started to be, like... I think, frustrated with the dynamic with my mom, especially because she caused kind of a lot of drama and stress around me. And I think, like, these days, often people use the word, like, Karen, like, just a very difficult person, like, kind of causes trouble. And she would cause kind of tension with my friends' parents or not wanting me to hang out with certain people or being kind of like overprotective or sometimes like going out to like a restaurant and like that secondary embarrassment when she would just be really difficult or send food back or like cause a scene. And like, I think it was around middle school when I started to realize like my mom was not somebody that I wanted to be like, but I didn't really know the whole story um, and especially because her illness has definitely, like, progressed as I've gotten older is, like, there's – yeah, there's just been, like, kind of a realization that, like, yeah, my mom's not like everybody else's mom. And it's more than her just being difficult. But I would say middle school through high school is when I really realized, like, oh, there's a lot going on here.
0: And when what point did you – like did the word schizophrenia or whatnot is what is that what your the diagnosis is or and at what point did like we realize or you realize that oh maybe it's something like that and and when you heard that were you was it scary or were you like that's just what really crazy people have that can't be my mom or so tell me about that evolution like did you think it was just depression or anxiety for a while like how did that work
1: i think at first um like when we first started Like, when I first started seeking therapy in, like, high school and my mom was, like, pushing to do things like family therapy and stuff, at first I think the diagnosis was more, like, borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. She, like, really had a lot of patterns of behavior that was very, like, emotionally abusive and manipulative and, like, therapists and mental health professionals would point that out. Like, for instance, the first time we did, quote, unquote, family therapy with my mom and I, like, after, like, I think it was, like, two sessions, the therapist said she could no longer do it because, basically because of my mom's behavior in the sessions towards me in front of the therapist. Um, As my mom has kind of, I guess, become less well over time, it's been more clear that she has, like some pretty significant um, delusions and hallucinations that are often seen with people with schizophrenia. Um, So that diagnosis probably fits more now, but it is interesting. My mom doesn't have, like, a stable mental health, like, team um so a lot of times she's seen when she's in a place of crisis in a hospital or whatever and so she's gotten a lot of diagnoses of like depression anxieties schizophrenia delusional disorder borderline personality disorder and you know i think it would be great for her to like actually sit down and get a proper diagnosis i just don't think we're ever gonna get that because she continues to believe there's just nothing wrong with her
0: yeah and that's so challenging i had the opposite kind of conversation with a student yesterday who he was in my office and he was a little bit jealous that his friend she had gotten a borderline personality disorder diagnosis in her first session with the psychiatrist and he was all mad because he's like well she's under 18 so they shouldn't be able to diagnose someone with that and i've been wanting to get a borderline diagnosis for years and i said well you, you shouldn't like that's not a great diagnosis to have He's like well i've been diagnosed with ocd and bipolar disorder and anxiety and these things. And I think I have a lot of borderline traits, but I've mm-hmm. my therapist and my psychiatrist and, you know, they, they see that and I said, well, again, a diagnosis is just a statement of how we're guiding treatment.
1: Right.
0: And therefore, you know, like in treating it used to be saying someone had borderline was like, we're not even going to bother to treat you like mm-hmm. you're too challenging. And so the, the idea now with things like dialectic behavioral therapy and whatnot, there are successful outcomes for people with borderline, but it's just so interesting. But this, so many other people, for example, I've, I've talked on the podcast about my, my nephew, one of my nephews who he has bipolar disorder and will not seek and accept any help. And so it's really hard for my brother to help him because he will not consistently take medication. He will mm-hmm. not go in for treatment. So it's hard to say. What exactly is the diagnosis? And with things like schizophrenia, a lot of times we're not seeing symptoms until 26, 27, 28, getting progressively worse over time. So a person who could really seem very normal or a person might think, oh, that's mm-hmm. bipolar disorder when the person's 22 or 23, these and again, what's the differentiation? Well, in my mind, it's that w- with schizophrenia, we're seeing delusions and hallucinations when the person is pretty calm, where mm-hmm. at bipolar, we're seeing delusions and hallucinations, but only when the person is really in a high energy or what we call manic state. So for you with your mom, you're seeing, you know, there's a lot of that agitation when you're seeing the delusions or hallucinations. So it's hard to tell. Is that what it, you're saying?
1: Yeah, and I also think it's just hard because she doesn't have a lot of insight. And so she's not very honest or willing to be kind of honest with herself about her symptomology. Um, So a lot of times she will say things like, well, yeah, I've had hallucinations, but it's only been because the doctors have given me a medication that caused it or because and then like sometimes like that delusion will come in where it's like well they implanted this thing under my skin and it's making me have these symptoms and it's killing me and it's like okay (laughs) like so it can be hard and it it's also hard to know like what her baseline is um and so when she's in a calm state I don't I don't know, does she still have some of these symptoms? And I would say definitely the delusional thinking is so kind of constant with her and has been for such a long time that it doesn't really seem like a bipolar thing where she's like cyclic. Mm -hmm. She cycles through her delusions. It's like she's pretty much delusional all the time. Um, You know, uh, (laughs) I like to use this example. Like her and my father have been divorced for over a decade, um, but she still wears her wedding ring and refers to him as – her husband. She really believes that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think anyone would agree that, like, that's not reality. We can't really argue that. with
0: Right. Her. No, that's there were papers. There were things that happened there. So that makes that part kind of tough. So going back to when you were a kid, for most people, especially when they're experiencing these things, you know, before the age of 11, somehow they find a way to blame themselves for anything, whether it's the parents has an addiction issue or, you know, parents have fighting in the marriage. Did you, were you ever blaming yourself for your mom's mental health difficulties and feeling like you needed to do more to please her or to to make things okay in the family?
1: Well, I think it was pretty hard not to blame myself because my mom also blamed me. So like I was like often like very much a like scapegoat. I think all my siblings were like when something wouldn't be going well, it was like one of our faults. Um, and as being the oldest, I think a lot of times like Anytime I did anything that she didn't agree with or didn't like, um, yeah, it would definitely be, like, placed on my fault. Like, I remember (laughs) it was very interesting, like, growing up, like, she was very neurotic about the house being locked because she had a lot of, like, delusions about people breaking in or people stealing our stuff or whatever, um, to the point where she wouldn't let any of us have keys to the house, So she had a key to the house and would lock the house and then I would come home from school and like not have a way to get in. And so I would often like I was really like I figured out how to like shimmy some of the windows I could like climb in the windows in my house and like. God forbid, like a screen got popped or something. And like, she would just be so angry with me and yelling at me. And like, I can't believe you'd break this screen. And I'm just like, I can't believe you locked me out of the house. It's winter. It's cold. I wanted to get in the house. I'd been sitting on the porch for 30 minutes. And so I think it's hard to like, not start thinking like, what's wrong with me or why am I causing all this conflict and drama at home? Like, And then at the same time, it's like, I also didn't know how to regulate my emotions because I didn't have anyone who taught me how to self-soothe and be calm. And so like, sometimes like, I really was a very like explosive teenager and I, all of my siblings, we can all agree, like we were not always the best. And so like, it was kind of this like, Not only were we being told, like, this is your fault, but we also weren't fully able to cope with a lot of the stress. So we were acting in ways that maybe weren't appropriate. And then, like, nobody else was taking any of the credit. Like, my mom would never be like, wow, I'm really sorry I locked you out. Or my dad would never be like, wow, like, what can I do to help? Like, it was – so it was kind of this, like, cycle of just, like, dysfunction.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And your dad – is, you know, you've told me before, he's kind of a conflict avoidant guy. And um, so was he able to shield you very much from some of those things and help you say, hey, this isn't your fault? Or did you not share some of those feelings with him? How how did that dynamic interplay with it? Because I think he just, the sense I've always gotten when you have talked about it is that he just didn't really know what to do. And, and I don't think there was a real easy answer with what do you do with a person who's, you know, not mentally well, like your mom.
1: Yeah, I think my dad rightfully assessed that it was harder sometimes when he was around just because there was so much fighting and dysfunction and yelling and screaming and my mom was so difficult to be around. Um, And so I think my dad kind of was just like, I'm just going to do whatever I can to just kind of avoid any conflict and just try to make things the best they can. So, like, you know, he would let her spend extravagance amount of money and build up credit card debt just to avoid a conflict. Or he would just agree with things so that she would just stop and he could, like, get a word in. Um, and so I don't know that my dad was necessarily, like, a great, like, protector for my mom. I think that he just did the best he could with the skills he had at the time um i <laughs> i think he's more of a friend than a parent mm-hmm. but um i also really feel for him in this situation because he didn't really i mean he was not a he was not like saved from the situation either so
0: no yeah and again when you married you expect that the person that you know you you think you're going to be with and you're not expecting them to have a huge mental shift over time and I can only imagine what it felt like to be him and feel this person changing more and more and I'm sure he was questioning himself too like how much of this is my fault you know are these things there but then you know worrying about and caring about the kids so for you I'm sure there were adults telling you and therapists and things like that hey this is not your fault but at what age you know, was it, you know, in your teens or in your 20s, whatever, like, that you were able to start emotionally actually saying, no, really, this isn't my fault as much. Like, I'm not responsible for her mental health.
1: Yeah, I think going to college is really helpful with that. I think, like, when you get away out of a place and able to, like, look back, it's easier. Um, I also think for me, like, distance has been really helpful with that. Like... My mom is really good at making me feel bad for everything. Um, And even when I'm doing something nice for her, like calling her and checking up on her, you know, like if I'm not able to say yes to everything she wants, like, for instance, if I call her and she's like, well, I just need you to drive me to Target to get some things. And I'm like no mom, like I can't, I live 45 minutes away. I have something to do. Like, and then she'll be like, I'm your mom. You should be helping me. Like, why aren't, why don't you love me? And it's like, wow, like I just called you to like check in and be nice and see how you're doing. And now I'm getting this whole guilt trip because I'm not able to spend my entire day to take you to target. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like one of those things where I think I had to be okay with being like contact with my mom is not helpful. Mm -hmm. And it's not bad that I'm going no contact with my mom. Like I probably talk to her once a month and I think that that is the most I can do for my own mental health. And I think that I have been so much just like better and happier since limiting my contact with her. Um, But she'll tell you that I'm horrible for that.
0: <laughs> well, you know, in, in Atlas of the Heart, Brene Brown quotes someone, I can't remember who, but just this idea that boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and love myself. Yeah. And I often think like when we talk, people throw around the word toxic, you know, as if they're, they're blaming and saying someone's bad. But to me, a toxic substance is anything that, which exposure to it can make us sick. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we can love people and we can be rooting for them, but exposure to them can have a toxic effect. And- you know, I'm I'm also friends with your sister, your younger sister, and I think she has a hard, hard time with not feeling guilty that she's not spending more time or answering your mom's phone calls or doing things like that. As siblings, how do you try to support each other with setting those boundaries and limits? Is there something that do you you know talk on the phone? Do you or do you say, "Hey, I, I know my sister has a different relationship with my mom," like so? Mm-hmm. That dynamic kind of work.
1: Um, so I would say that my sister often bears the burden of being maybe the one with the well, my dad too, like they both kind of have maybe less firm boundaries that kind of move around and change. And I think that that is hard. Like, For instance, I have my mom blocked on my phone because she literally will call me 10 times a day and leave three-minute-long voicemails and text me And that makes it harder to not talk to her because it's constantly in your mind. And so I have her blocked, and when I want to reach out to her, I do. Um, My sister, though, has a really hard time with that because she's like, well, what if something is wrong? What if she can't get a hold of me, you know? And so she does get all these texts and calls all the time, and and so I think for her, that is just kind of like a very big cross to bear of like, well, nobody nobody else wants to talk to her and somebody needs to. And so she often feels like that responsibility. And then I think my dad at times has that too, where he's like, even though he's been divorced from her for so long, he feels some sort of, I guess, obligation to help her even though she's not willing to help herself. So it, yeah, it gets really tiring and draining. And I think that at this point it's kind of like, we all just do what we can and what's best for us. And we all understand that each of us has some different way of going about it. That's best for them.
0: Yeah, I and mean, I think the key is saying, what's it gonna take for me to feel like I can sleep at night? And mm-hmm. like, if I if a homeless person asks me for a dollar I know that dollar is not going to fix his life, but if it's going to help me sleep better to give that guy a dollar, I can go ahead and do it. And if for your sister or your dad, if giving answering the phone call or having dinner or doing whatever is going to help them sleep better, that's fine. But it's then a question of how much emotional hangover is there from that time, that phone call, that dinner, whatnot. So I think really the key always asking ourselves and, and what's really sustainable or another term I think a lot about in these situations is like, don't feed the geese in that, you know, we don't want to feed animals that should be flying away for the winter because we're not helping them in a sustainable way. So is this this energy that I'm giving toward this person, is this sustainable? Am I helping this person longer term by doing this? Or, and I think there are, you know, always there's other family members in lives of the people who are maybe more enabling in one way or another, and we can't always control that. So Mm -hmm sometimes a person has to, in order to accept treatment or care, sometimes they may have to hit a rock bottom, but if someone else is willing to provide them with shelter or food or alcohol or whatever the, the case may be in certain people's case, then they're going to keep doing that. And that can be really frustrating. So have you like, and I know there's extended family and aunts and things like that, but it, is it, is it hard to get on the same page as those people? What's that that experience been like for you?
1: yeah, so we have a really interesting situation where I think we're all on the same page of like, my mom is at this place where she is no longer well enough to care for herself. um, and that really comes um is very apparent when you meet her and just even her giving herself enough nutrients to like survive, like she's has a very low weight. Her health isn't good. She's just not taking care of herself. And it's hard to see. Um, She doesn't have a job. Her housing is somewhat stable. Um, But so we're all kind of on the same page where it's like she needs more support. Um, And so, you know, looking into things like assistive care type settings. um, However, there's one holdout in our family. And that would be like kind of the enabler. And that's my grandma. Um, And my grandma pays her rent and pays for her, you know, I guess I would call it like just whatever money she needs to survive. Um, And so we all kind of feel in the family, my aunt and uncle and my dad and my brother and my sister and myself. And we all feel like if that money was pulled back, my mom would be more willing to take help and take the next step towards a more supported setting.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: But yeah, when you have one person that's still willing to do it, Um, it's really hard to take those next steps. And so that's kind of, yeah, it definitely builds a lot of resentment towards my grandma because it seems like, well, can you just stop giving her money? Um, And it gets even more complicated because my grandma doesn't really even have money to give her. Mm -hmm. So my grandma is also in this place where it's like, Hey, you're getting really old and elderly and you need to be helping yourself, mm-hmm. um, but you're not able to because of the support you're voluntarily giving to my mom. so it it's an interesting dynamic for sure.
0: yeah, so I think that it's it's so common, but so you know when a family can get on the same page, an extended family and everybody and set those similar boundaries and say, Hey, you can come here for a meal. You can do those things. But and especially it, often when we're thinking about drug abuse or whatnot instead, that, that. but here's where, here's the line and here's what we can't do. Um, and I think sharing education, but I know, I don't know about for you, but for me, sometimes even when you're a mental health expert, the fam- you're still so-and-so to your family and they don't necessarily want to hear it. Um, how is your, like, does your family, you know, sometimes for some social workers, I know it can be a little bit exhausting because... They do become the social work expert for every cousin and everything else like that In your family are people coming to you for advice or are they kind of ignoring it and saying we know better because we're older and we remember changing your diapers and things like that
1: <laughs> um i would say it depends on who you're talking to okay um So, for instance, I don't even know that my grandma really knows I'm a social worker. Like, I I would say my dad goes to me for advice a lot. And he really takes me for what I have to say. I would say the same is similar, maybe, for my brother and sister. My aunt is interesting. And we've kind of, like, headed out on this. Where it's, like, I tell her something that I know is just the way it works. Like, for instance, it is very hard to get guardianship of someone in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And even if you're able to forcing them to be in some sort of setting that they don't want to be in Mm -hmm. is still very hard, even if you have guardianship. And it costs money. You have to get a lawyer. Um, And I explained this to my aunt, and she just doesn't want to hear what I have to say. Or she has an idea, and I know that her idea is probably not going to work. But yeah, she doesn't really give me the credit I think for like, wow, I like went to school for this. I remember one time we were talking and she was, I'm like, I was like, I went to school for this. And she's like, well, I worked in a psychiatric facility for 10 years. And I'm like, yeah, like 40 years ago. <laughs> like, like I don't know why that gives you more knowledge or whatever than I have. But, um, but I, I love her. Um, She's wonderful and supportive and, but every once in a while, we kind of like butt heads on that, where it's like, I wish she would listen to me more, but I understand that she's also in a frustrating situation.
0: But I think it's so hard for, for people who, particularly like a sibling, who grew up with this person and may have known them when they were more stable. I know for my mom with her sister, when she, w- my, my aunt had uh, paranoid schizophrenia, and when she would talk about her hallucinations or delusions, my mom would just get mad at her stop that Lorraine, there are no birds over there, or you know, whatnot. and so it's just like, hey mom, she's not trying to do this. But I think for them, it, it feels like, I remember you from when you were mm-hmm. able, so this feels like just something you're doing, cut it out,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: you know, that, that extent. I know also in that idea of getting help and support though, I remember for my mother getting disability, like long-term Medicare and Medicaid disability for her sister, it was exhausting of filling out the paperwork. And I remember my mother telling me, you have to be prepared to get rejected by the state at least once, and then go back and fill it all out, even if you have an ironclad case. Has your family begun looking into, and is your mom willing to participate in signing off on forms to get um, like medical power of attorney for you or for, you know, so what's your guys, and what any advice and recommendations so far that you would give to people about that process?
1: um it's horrible um if the person is not willing to work with you Mm -hmm. um so i have luckily been able to like help my mom get on like medicaid um at one point she was on snap and she had an appointment set up to be like just, like, a final appointment to be approved for, I think it was, like, SSDI. And this was a few years ago. I did all the online forms. I did all the things. I was really excited about it. Um, She wouldn't go to the appointment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so her SNAP and link card got taken away. Um, They kept the Medicaid mostly because she was such a frequent flyer in the hospital system that the hospital system pretty much just figured out a way to get her on it. Mm Um, And then for in terms of like the social security, like they're not going to give her benefits if she's not willing to participate in the process. Um, And that kind of goes into like my mom's mental illness, which is where she believes that my dad should be supporting her. Why would she need to be on state aid if she has a husband? Um, So it's very interesting. Um, I think my best piece of advice would be be to get help from someone who's either done it or been through the process um and if (laughs) you know it's it's hard um and it's not easy to you would think you know the people who really need it it would be easy to get but that's not often the way it is um and often the people who need it most are not willing to kind of be a party to it. Yeah, Yeah, it,
0: it feels like you do need a master's degree just to know how to fill out some of the forms. And then, you know, so for um, imagine a person who's on their own, who doesn't have anyone helping them. i, I feel encouraged my brother to say to his son, listen, he, he supports his son, pays for his apartment, gives him money to eat and things like that. But that, hey, I'm not going to unless you sign over medical power of attorney or whatnot, so I can at least talk to doctors, then I'm not going to keep Giving you money for rent or other things. And so we have to use what leverage we have. But it can be that can feel gross. It can feel really bad to be strong arming someone. But unfortunately, yeah. if you won't do that without the medical power of attorney, the doctors won't even talk to my brother when my you know nephew is in the hospital because he's already right. seen. And so that those can be really big challenges. So anything that you've done that's successfully in communicating with her treatment team or anything that you would say is uh, something for that people should look into if they're trying to help a family member, but you know, they're not getting, or to get those releases of information or to be all yeah. like that.
1: Um, I would say, so my mom is typically like hospitalized in some sort of inpatient setting a couple times a year. Um, and you never really know where she's going to be, where she's gonna go sometimes we don't even know that she's there until she calls us Mm -hmm. um and sometimes she allows us to talk to people and sometimes she doesn't um and when she doesn't allow us to talk to people they will not talk to us Mm -hmm. um (laughs) and even if i'm like hey can you just put me on the line with the social worker so i can just talk to her and she doesn't even need to say anything she just needs to listen to me and they're like no (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, great, that's helpful um, because as you can imagine, my mom's an unreliable reporter, so yeah. they're not getting the full story. Um, I would say when my mom does get permission, I do do a lot of like coordinating um, with her doctor and social worker. This last time she was in the hospital, I talked through with them on different meds that she's been on, different diagnoses, what's been helpful, what's been unhelpful, Um, And even at the end of that, we came up with a plan, and then my mom just said no. So it was kind of a waste anyways. Um, But it does feel validating when I get to talk to someone and they're like, yeah, we had a really interesting conversation with your grandma. And I'm like, yeah, isn't that interesting? Or your mom says X, Y, and Z, is that true? And I'm like, no. And they're like, yeah, we didn't think so. And I'm like, wow, it's so validating that other people see all these crazy things. Um, but it's also really frustrating that they also can't do anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because at the end of the day she just refuses.
0: Right. That in, in Illinois or in, in America, we you you have the right to be quote unquote crazy. And I yes. don't know how I don't have any suggestions for the government on how to fix that because I don't want to live in a world where people can be forcibly medicated if they don't want to be. But it's so mm-hmm. hard when there are people who are really they're not making decisions with in the same reality as the rest of us. And so it's just tough to decide. You know, I just, I, I pray always for new technology or some new way to help with these things like schizophrenia or where bipolar, where a person's not on the same plane of reality because they're not making the best decisions for their lives. Right. With you growing up, were you able, or did you feel like, like when did you feel, maybe not even today, that you could talk to friends about what you were experiencing? And did you feel like, no, I have to keep this as a secret?
1: I would say when I was growing up, it was very like closeted, mostly because I still was kind of like, I didn't know how much of it was me and how much of it was her and how much of it was me. Like, um, just kind of like making something that wasn't really there. And like, it's also hard to know, like, how much of this is like normal Mm -hmm. or not. Um, So I would say growing up, I didn't talk a lot about it. I would say my close friends totally knew that my mom was not normal Mm -hmm. um, and that she had some difficulties. Now it's kind of interesting because I'm in like a professional like world. Um, And so like some of my coworkers will know um, like, oh yeah, like, my mom has some serious mental health issues. Like she has schizophrenia. Um, But I really only tell people if it's like important um my sister and I and I think my brother too if we've all had this experience where we don't talk about our mom to other people so people kind of just assume she's dead um or no longer with us which on one hand is like really sad but it's also kind of nice because if you never talk about your mom people don't bring them up um because they don't want to like bring up something that's upsetting so I talk about my dad a lot to like my friends and my coworkers and stuff and I just don't really talk about my mom and Sometimes it's kind of, like, just she's not really a part that much of my life anymore, that it's, like, I can do that. But then when things are going on, it's, like, it's hard, too, because it's, like, I'm kind of carrying this burden, and I don't have a lot of people to talk about because I don't normally talk about it.
0: How about, with, so. how about within your own work, like in deciding, you know, if you're working with a client, you know, as a therapist who's dealing with some of the things that you dealt with, do you ever, like, how do you decide how much to expose and share of either, you know, stuff about your family or even other mental health, like treatment that you've got undergone? Like how do you make that determination of what's appropriate for you to share and not share as far as self-disclosure in your work?
1: I think as long as self-disclosure ex- is for the benefit of the client that it's okay. And like, as long as it's within in some sort of boundary. So a lot of times I'll be very vague with my clients. Like if I have a client who also has a parent who has a mental health issue or a sibling, I'll be like, I, I'll empathize with them and share like a very small bit of like, I also had a parent who struggled with mental health and I understand how stressful and scary and upsetting that can be. Um, With myself, like, you know, I might share, like, I struggled with depression in a time in my life and I thought things wouldn't get any better. And here I am. Mm -hmm. So I'll sometimes share, but like, it's very kind of like I try to very quickly turn it back to the client because this is their time and their space and it's not about me.
0: Are there things that people, friends, or, you know, therapists, or school professionals, teachers, anyone, could have done more to help or that you would encourage, you know, people to do to help out more for someone who's got a family member with significant mental health issues, or does it really depend on just that individual seeking out the support?
1: Um, I think it depends. I do wish like our family was given more support. I think Um, It was hard because, like, (laughs) oftentimes there, like, wouldn't be money for things, but my dad made too much money to get things, Mm -hmm. like, to get certain benefits, and especially at the school, it was like, they wouldn't even, like, talk to us about things we needed, like, we didn't have money for books or whatever, and they just wouldn't even talk to us because they're like, oh, well, according to the paperwork we have, your dad makes X amount, so you don't qualify for anything, it's like, okay, well, that's great, but I still don't have lunch money or money for books, so um like what are you gonna do about that um
0: right because you you can't explain that my mom spent all the money that was supposed to go for that so I I don't you know while the number that (laughs) the tax number he brought in is x amount but the money does not exist it's not there
1: right and I also like yeah and sometimes I just like wish people would like take into consideration like that not everybody has like a functioning home environment Mm -hmm. and that's not the kid's fault, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's not. Yeah. And so I think though that has gotten better with time. And like now that I work in a school, like I always try to like share with people, like, we don't know what's going on at home. Like We don't know what's going on behind closed doors. And a lot of times there's more to the story that we don't know. And so I like when people like, look at it from that point of view is like, there's always more that we don't know.
0: Is there anything that you wish you could have told to your younger self or to your siblings when they were younger, just so that to, to help them to not internalize as much that this, this, this struggle of your mother's was on them or on you? Is there anything you wish you could say to younger Eleanor, you know, and just saying that, or would anything have helped in when you were younger?
1: Um, I wish I could just like say to myself, like, you can be okay, even though your mom's not okay. Um, And I think that growing up a lot of times, I just thought that I was destined to have the same life and brain and reality as my mom. And that obviously isn't true, because I'm healthy, and I'm a functioning adult, and I'm doing well. And I just wish I would have known that like, I, I'm okay. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and it all worked out.
0: Yeah. And I think that's gotta be such, I know for myself and just thinking of you we know, are these things gonna happen for me or for my own kids and knowing how much mental health struggles are in my family. But I was talking with someone the other day of saying the difference for my kids is that we're going to, because we're not going to have any stigma and shame about talking. If they do need therapy, if they do need support, hey, certain chemicals might be, the genetics are our family suggests certain chemicals might be off and that's okay. That's not anything that you need to feel bad about, but we can get you the help and support. And I think if we can remove some of the stigma within the family, then people, our, our mental health issues can become our superpowers. Do you think, you know, I often say that depression can lead to really highly developed empathy. Anxiety can lead to an awareness of difficulties that people are facing. Do you feel like you have developed any benefits from some of these difficulties that you you had to face growing up with the house that you did and with your own struggles?
1: Um, I would say that, like, I can manage an, a pretty good amount of, like, stress without freaking out. <laughs> um, and also, like, I think that I have a very good, like, kind of way of looking at a bigger picture Mm -hmm. um that a lot of people wouldn't do like like I know like sometimes even like working at a school like sometimes things get put on your plate or someone leaves or something isn't going the way you expect it and like people get really worked up about it and I'm just kind of like hey we got this like it's fine we'll be okay and like people always talk about how positive I am I don't even know if I'm necessarily a positive person but it's kind of like all problems look kind of small now to me because it's like it dealt with some really big problems. So,
0: yeah, so it gave you a bit of a, the gift of perspective. Yeah.
1: I think so. Um, and I definitely think like empathy. Like, I, I would say I'm like a very empathetic person to the point where I'm often looking out for other people's emotions. Mm-hmm. Whether sometimes I think usually that's a good thing, but um, I just am often the one in the room worrying about other people and how they're feeling and I think that makes me really awesome at my job mm-hmm. so <laughs>
0: it's <Yeah>. not bad <laughs> I have a I I you know I haven't worked directly with you but you are a therapist that I refer to and so I think uh, it's pretty fair to say you're pretty pretty awesome at your job so in taking for listeners who are struggling with having a family member with a mental health issue you know, please email in to Daniel.makler at live.com and ask any of the questions. And I can also get Eleanor to weigh in on them. But I think some keys to takeaways are don't try to realize that you can't control all of this, that you have to set boundaries. And hopefully, if you can, get the support of the rest of your family, find out what resources are in the community, and don't try to take on the forms or the system by yourself find a guide who's been there already. Because it is a hard and exhausting road when we love someone who can't necessarily take care of themselves. And it's not, go. it doesn't go quickly. It's, uh, for many of us, it's a decades long proposition. And you're going to keep loving that person, even when they've given you every reason and every right to walk away. So you can't be responsible for them, so you have to set that tone of prioritizing your own life and letting go of the guilt of doing that because you're not helping them by not having a good life. Giving yourself permission, like Eleanor did, to move on and to go be healthy, that she didn't have to stay unhealthy just because her mom was. Any other last tips that you would um, suggest to anyone?
1: Um. Wow, that's a big question. I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, thank you all for listening. And thank you so much, Eleanor, for coming on the podcast. I might beg you to come on again sometime because this is not your only area of uh, common overlap expertise in the mental health area. So if you would want Eleanor to come back on, remember, send some questions and do whatever it takes to get you through this world. Just remember, you are not allowed to die.